Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bigger Picture podcast. This is the third and final episode in a series I've been doing, interviewing some of the faculty members on my upcoming course, New Ways of Knowing, which starts on December 13th. This episode is a conversation with Peter Limburg. Some of you might be familiar with Peter's work already. He stewards an in-person and online community called the STOA. And he's also one of the leading voices in the application of Stoicism and wisdom traditions to modern culture. Currently, he writes a really great substack called Less Foolish. And in my view, Peter is one of the most interesting thinkers engaged in navigating the meaning crisis and taking a deeper view on the culture wars. Peter and I do occasional philosophical inquiries together, which are always really juicy and very interesting. Um, I always leave feeling incredibly refreshed. So it's our hope that you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as we did having it. Peter, it is uh, not the first time we've done this, and we often do this not recorded, um, but yeah, it's a real pleasure to be connecting like this again with people listening. Mm, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, man, and thanks for inviting me to uh, be a part of this uh, wonderful course that you have prepared for all of us. So just to give people some some framing, um, I thought it'd be cool to talk a little bit about your journey over the last, uh, I don't know, perhaps five or six years. We've been on sort of similar paths in terms of looking at what's going on in culture and what some people have called the meta crisis. So the many sort of overlapping crises that we face at this time in history. And you've been, you know, for, for me, one of the most interesting thinkers in in those areas. And we've kind of landed in similar places in terms of the importance of aesthetics, beauty, art, um, creating culture. So I would love to just hear what what has your journey been to get to that point to where you are now? Yeah, I think, um, you know, a good starting point might be my attraction to Stoicism, the philosophy of Stoicism, because I was, uh, uh, I took philosophy in academia and it was pretty dry. <laughs> it was pretty dry, you know, this kind of a, um, what uh, Pierre Hadot, the philosopher Pierre Hadot calls an uh, artist of reason rather than artist of life. Um, and Stoicism felt like the most vital uh, philosophy out there. And when it comes to like, you know, Western philosophies, uh, the most practical. <laughs> and so about if we were using that kind of the five, six year timeline, I started a, a, a group in Toronto, Stoicism Toronto, to talk about stoicism um and it was pretty popular it became the like the largest stoic group uh in the world uh but i got rapidly bored of just talking about stoicism and then started talking about all the other jazzy jazzy subjects um and i'm situated in in, in toronto and there's something about toronto that's quite um especially back then was like, I guess, memetically schizophrenic. Like we had all these sorts of different um, worldviews, ideologies. So I had these like open form events and it had, it was like usually circles and a topic was, was presented, an intellectual topic. It wasn't all the stoicism, it was about whatever, like philosophy cafes on topics of uh, love, power, politics. And it was just people talking past each other. Uh, and with different viewpoints, we had people who were atheists, people who were religious, people who were Buddhistic, people who were like social justice warriors. That was the term that was being thrown at the time. Uh, people were more reactionary incels. We had everyone. 
And it was just like, there's no like holding space. There's no listening. Everyone was just talking uh, past each other. Um, and so that was uh, um, just like, I enjoyed it. People drove people nuts and then the room, but there was like, they kept coming back for some reason. But I just like, as a cultural anthropologist, I was like, what's happening here? Um, and then during when I was hosting these, these philosophy forums in Toronto, uh, Jordan Peterson was my uh, therapist and he just, uh, like my last session with him, it just worked out this way. He kind of entered the culture war by criticizing uh, the the pronoun, uh, um, the government uh, uh, policy proposals regarding pronouns. And just witnessing my former therapist um, rise in the culture war and then see all these different perspectives, uh, first getting polarized and see all these different perspectives interpret him in different ways was... Um, just jarring, but just fascinating. I couldn't couldn't look away like most other people. And so, with those two uh, experiences, having the the, um, the medically schizophrenic uh, philosophy groups, and then seeing Jordan Peterson's rise, uh, led me to write about the the culture war uh, in 2018. I wrote this piece, uh, "Medic Tribes of Culture War 2.0," and then the central argument there was. The culture war is not a bipolar war like left and right. It's composed of what I dubbed medic tribes, um, basically different philosophies, living philosophies on the internet, arguing with each other that have different sacred values, values that cannot be transgressed. So this is like uh, social justice warriors, woke, Black Lives Matter, um, uh, what's called alt-right, manosphere, the new atheist, intellectual dark web. It's like all these are kind of like mimetic uh constellations like a, a set of ideas and values of uh, of what reality is and ought to be and they're kind of at warring with each other and so i wrote this paper uh it got on a lot of people's radars including you and, and rebel wisdom and then that's how we uh, met and started making sense of uh the culture or what i call culture war 2.0 um so i'll pause there and see uh see where you like to take it yeah, there's so, so many potential threads. The the one that what's coming up for me right now is this sense of uh, well gratitude. I remember reading the the piece, um, Culture War 2.0, and I think it speaks a lot to the necessity of taking a, um, a nuance and complexity focused view on culture because so many people, because of the way the political systems are set up um, in you know in the U.S. Uh, and many European countries where you have a sort of one group of sort of progressively focused kind of parties, which are going, okay, we're going to move forward in this particular way. And then you have a groups of conservatively focused parties. And that, that polarity, I think, is quite deep in, in human nature. So sure, it shows up. But actually, <clears throat> it seems like a fallacy to assume that what's going on in culture and, and the culture wars is based on that neat split, which you could see in like, you know, movies in the 80s, um, you know, like Rocky, you know, you have that when at the time where there was a bipolar, let's say bipolar world, that difference to the time we live in now, I think is so essential. And it completely changes the way you start navigating culture. Um, you start, you know, I think what you guys, what you did very well in that paper is looking at the value systems at play. Um, and then of course, there's the game theory behind it all, like um, Venkatesh Rao uh, wrote about in the internet of beefs of this kind of um, warfare uh, aspect to it. Actually, I'd love to just pick up on that. That feels really spicy to me. But the aspect of culture as a process of warfare, of different group vying for narrative control. Um, I'd love to just hear you riff on that a little bit, and particularly like how that has changed in the last, say, you know, four or five years. What stage of the war do you think we're in right now? 
Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating because when each like world event happens, whether it's the COVID moment or the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, it's it's like, okay, who's going to support who, right? You see different kind of like, oh, then people start splitting. Like you thought like Sam Harris and, and uh, Brett Weinstein were, were buds, but then the COVID moment happened. And then, they're, you know, they're they're on different mimetic tribes now. And you can see the same thing happening in the, the conflict in um, Palestine and Israel. Um, so it's fascinating to see how these different uh, mimetic configurations uh, shake out, um, which which goes to the point that is like a multipolar kind of war, not a bipolar one, or the at least the illusion of a bipolar one. Um, so where we're at now, uh, like I don't think there's a culture anymore. I think that's like there. Some people say an anti-culture, or, or Ben Davis calls it the after-culture. Uh, it just feels like there's no culture. And there's people just imposing their narrative, almost in a way that knowing that not they're, they're knowing that they're not going to be victorious. Um, and there's almost this kind of like movement away from culture war to psyops, or there's like psyops is a thing that's getting really kind of a, a lot of uh, attention right now. And there's this this term psyops realism, uh, and psyops is psychological uh, operation operations um, to manipulate people to. Uh, you know, convert them to a certain point of view. And then there's psyops realism is this, this paranoia that everyone is trying to do that right now on the internet. Everyone is trying to gaslight us, trying to convert us to our narrative. And so there's just like tuning out this distrust uh, with what's happening on the internet. And so, yeah, something feels right about uh, this paranoia, this distrust, and which is uh, understandable why the conspiracy kind of conspiratorial tribes have been pretty dominant the last few years. What that brings up for me is this, um, you know, I've used the phrase a few times of this kind of, that we seem to be culturally penduluming between nihilism and narcissism. So you get the narcissism of our social media feeds and this sort of the deification of the self because there's there's a lack of something sacred, something that's higher than than the social game, and so the self becomes that. And then you get the the nihilism, which um, you know you get in a lot of a lot of the memes that that spread. Those those kind of classic memes of the guy with the cigarette and the kind of you know the wrinkled or Pepe the Frog was also a kind of wry nihilistic symbol. You know, when you were talking, I had this sense of a relationship that's over, right? And the kind of everyone's just going through the motions. There's something in culture for me, drawing on what you were just saying, of no one's heart is really in it anymore. There's not really, and this is kind of the meaning crisis, right? It's like there's a sense of futility, I would say, but it's a very strange time to live in because it's a combination of futility and lots of energy. And and the, you know, the, the less confident someone is in something, the more aggressively they assert sometimes, right? And so I think that that plays out. Um, I think that plays out a lot in culture. Yeah. And I think with all this, there's a, a fatigue, a culture war fatigue, a psyop fatigue, internet fatigue in general. And a friend asked me recently, where's the vital edge of culture? And, you know, the cute answer is that there is no culture. Uh, but when I kind of just, Try to honor the spirit of that question it didn't feel like there was an answer like maybe five years ago there was an answer but it just doesn't feel like there's a, a where's the vital edge of culture right now and you know we can look at that in a negative sense like oh no like we're in this uh, nihilistic um narcissistic phase which i do think is an accurate uh, assessment that a lot of people are feeling but 
there is a sense that there is a vital edge emerging um, and I'm seeing a new artistic genre emerging as well um, where it's like everyday life is treated as art. Uh, like the contents of everyday life is used to create a meaningful life. And so I'm seeing this new, new creative forces that are bubbling up, but it's like, it's not going to be found. Or it's not going to be seen uh, on the internet or in the spectacle or in the social media feeds. There's something fascinating about that. I, I'm keen to get your thoughts on that a little bit deeper because this idea, there's two elements of that. One is this return to the present moment. And I think a return to embodiment, you know, which can be maybe summed up by that, that, um, that phrase touch grass. That was, uh, I haven't seen it that, that much recently, but certainly was popular on social media, this kind of um, get off your computer and, you know, touch some grass. I found that really fascinating because there is a call to come back to the reality of the body. And I think that's really, uh, some, there's something fundamental in that to me. Uh, and then there's also this, this call to remove ourselves from the spectacle in order to do that. Like you said, like it's not going to be online because in some ways the game of online doesn't allow for that. In fact, online isn't really allow for embodiment in a very deep level uh, at all. So could you talk a little bit more about that, that movement to like, you know, I think you've described it as making, making life art. Where are you seeing the, the beginnings of that happening right now? Well, it's like, the, I think the closest thing in, uh, you know, the art world is uh, called a happening where it's like uh, you kind of make sure even to yourself, what is happening is life or art. So it's like kind of like the situational art where people come and they started doing like um, strange things and people look around and that's been around since the uh, 1960s and then the fluxus movement theater of oppressed you know burning man it's like these are all kind of uh, legacies uh, of this like life art um, which is Jonathan Harris's term life art using the contents of life to create art um, in San Francisco's underground art scene which influenced burning man they, they call it psycho magic so basically like just using everyday situations to create enchanted moments um, and I think like there's, there's people that, uh, um, in our space, like Cheryl Shu comes to mind and she has a series of the Stoa, uh, called collective homemaking, which is beautiful. Uh, and she has this new kind of artistic genre. Um, and my sense is that there's three things that are, are baked into it is that, uh, like the arts, the traditional arts are, are going to be, uh, play a supporting role. So music, film, you know, illustration. And I think uh, generative AI is going to like really help with that. Because I, I remember I used to pay like good money for illustrators to draw things for my kind of like, you know, my pieces and stuff like that. And now I can just like pop up a, a mid-journey and get it uh, like one that uh, the amazing ones. So I think this, uh, these like forms of art, there's like an art anxiety that a lot of artists have. But I think this kind of um, this emancipation from the, the arts uh, is going to help support this new emerging genre. Uh, and then the second premise there is this primary uh, primacy of we spaces. I think a lot of people are experimenting with we spaces like circling, collective presencing, insight dialogue, uh, inquiry, um, uh, that give like a heightened sense, like a flow state and dialogue, but also kind of like give a heightened sense of togetherness. Uh, and if you do it long enough, it's almost like a new being uh, emerges. Um, and a lot of people who are in the we space scene, they're kind of, they have like a psychotherapeutic bias, 
but I sense this new, having this framing of what we're doing here is art together, um, will create kind of like this uh, more communitas, sacred type of vibes. And I, I would say the third premise is that there's just going to be a movement away from the spectacle in, in real life, which has its challenges. And I think the current direct uh, trajectory with the nihilism and narcissism is moving away from real life toward more being involved in the spectacle and plugged in. Um, so with this kind of emerging thing, I think those three premises are, are, are at play. Yeah, I love that. I'd like, I'd like to pick up specifically on the, the idea of the we spaces. Um, and particularly what I love about what you just said is that, you know, the difference between the intention of coming together for, let's say, healing or for kind of reaching some kind of deep insight into something compared to the, the intention of coming together in that kind of practice to make art, to make life art, to make the thing we're doing art. That appeals to me immensely because I've been, you know, involved in these these spaces um, for a number of years as well. And, you know, there's something magic there. There's something magic about a dialogue practices together where the process of dialoguing is the thing that we're doing. And there's an emergent quality to it that takes us somewhere new. And I think when it is focused around endless self-introspection or, or some kind of healing, it it can be amazing, but it can quickly become quite uh, navel-gazing and circular, and it can lose its uh, sexiness, basically. And it's funny because um, when I launched New Ways of Knowing, like that, the day or like the night I launched it, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, okay, I'm really excited about this, but there's something missing. I know there's something missing, and I was only able to see it as soon as I launched it. And I was like, what is it? And this, this line came to me, which was, make complexity sexy again. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's what it is. There's, there's a lack of um, growth and energy and life force in some of these approaches that I think is, is really needed. And I think that's something that you, you bring uh, very well. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what are, what are these practices exactly? Like what is, for example, the one that one of the ones that you use philosophical inquiry, like what, how would you describe that to someone who'd never heard of it before? Yeah, I want to, um, very concise elevator pitch that helps sell it. <laughs> and I don't have one. <laughs> I'll just kind of like a free associate uh, on uh, how I hold it. So kind of an inquiry is a, a questioning into the unknown. Um, and I think the two predominant modes of inquiry, and this is just like broadly, perhaps crudely uh, spoken, is a, a coaching kind of inquiry and a psychotherapeutic inquiry. Um, and kind of one is looking at the external world and one is looking at the internal world. One has the value, um, let's say of success, the coaching inquiry and the psychotherapeutic inquiry has the, uh, value of healing, um, and philosophical inquiry. Um, it, it weaves between kind of the coaching type inquiry weaves between being effective in the world, but then it can go to the, um, the psychotherapeutic where you're, you're doing the inner work, but also like goes to the meta, the, the, the theoretical, because sometimes we have to like tinker with our presuppositions, our axioms of what we believe is true. Um, and so I don't see any, cause most coaching and the, uh, psychotherapeutic frameworks, they're bounded by uh, a theory or a method, um, where, and you, you can't like touch almost like the, the, the assumptions there. Um, where philosophical inquiry, it's like you can 
start editing, you know, your, your worldview, you can kind of like reprogram your operating system. So there's a weaving that happens, uh, um, I see in uh, the inquiries that I have. And there's, there's another like, so if, if the coaching modalities of success is the value and then uh, psychotherapy is healing. And when I use the term value, I'm using Joe Edelman's definition, like attentional protocol. That's how he defines it, which is very clean as a value is put your attention on a certain aspect of reality. And what's the, the value of philosophical inquiry? Wisdom. Um, and one definition of wisdom I quite like is from Igor Grossman, who's part of the wisdom uh psychology task force in Toronto with John Ruvakey, where they kind of like had this uh, scientific study on wisdom. And he defines it as the meta value that adjudicates between all other values. And so it's like an attentional protocol that can look at all the attentional protocols available and then choose one according to the context uh, a person finds themselves in. Um, and I really love that. And I think inquiry uh, helps one um, not necessarily become more wise, but I like to reframe it as the inverse, less foolish, uh, because the, the opposite of wisdom is foolishness. Um, and if you become less foolish, then presumably you're becoming more wise. But uh, um, yeah, I, uh, so in a philosophical inquiry, it starts, something is usually bothersome or alive for someone, uh, something in the middle, and then uh, I hold space for them. Uh, and then usually a form of questioning emerges and uh, conversation goes to beautiful places. And it's always a surprise. And I find the best framing for this is, is like we're doing art here. I try to treat each inquiry as a form of art. Um, so the art of inquiry and which maps over to like, you know, philosophy is the, the art of living as some people call it. So I don't know if that's the, 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 the most concise elevator pitch, but that's basically how I uh, hold uh, philosophical inquiry. Yeah, that was pretty solid, man. That's a really nice. I like the uh, the distinction between the two different types, um, and I'd add a third one, at least from from my form of inquiry, uh, which comes from the diamond approach, which is, um, I say, you know, psycho spiritual insight in that tradition, where there's this idea of peeling back the layers of. Um, uh, with that, the layers created by our own minds over a sense of essential being um, underneath it. So there's these all these different types of inquiry, you know, and, and I personally am mainly, um, not mainly, but like I'm very interested in the role of inquiry in helping us to make sense of culture, right? So it's why in the, in the pods of New Ways of Knowing, but also all the other courses I've ever run, there's usually this uh, process of learning how to take that attitude, because I think it's for me, it's an attitude. It's a, it's a stance that we take in response to the world as much as anything else um, and applying it to what we're seeing. Because if we're in inquiry about, say, the war uh, in Israel and Palestine, we're in a different mindset than coming down on a position. Or if we're in an in inquiry around what's going on in our relationship, we're in a different mindset than being in a fixed position. And so there's something really important, it feels to me, about the way that these practices uh, go from being a, like a state to a trait, as it's referred to in the mindfulness world. And John Verveke or other cognitive scientists would talk about it being an example of um, exaptation. You know? So we take something from one area and we apply it somewhere else in our life. And I think inquiry is one of the most useful skills to take from, say, a practice like philosophical inquiry or the diamond approach or circling or all these different practices that use it and then 
and then apply it to where we actually do feel really stuck, like discussing gender in culture, for example. Um, Skylar Brown, I think, does this beautifully with her um, cultural embodiment. But yeah, maybe I'll, I'll just I'll just pause there and see if that brought anything up. Yeah, and uh, just to go back to that taxonomy, where I said like the philosophical coaching and psychotherapeutic. Um, I think anyone who engages in inquiry long enough will eventually um, move towards the value of wisdom. Um, and so they would all be doing philosophical inquiry uh, in the way I'm, I'm holding it. Um, and I think the really great therapists and really great coaches are actually doing philosophical inquiry rather than just, uh, um, you know, sticking with a certain method. And um, yeah, what came up is the, you know, that question game where you just like have to ask a question and then you respond with a question, then you ask a question and I've done, um, I guess, a Wii Space type of a game like that for like 30 minutes. We're just like a group of like a, a like four people just doing the question game. And it really, if you just keep asking questions and then uh, the felt sense of a question itself, like genuinely feeling that and embodying that, it just like permeates the social field, it permeates the room. And that is like the state one gets in when they're engaging in a, a real inquiry, like an actual curiosity of the unknown. And putting yourself in that state like shit i don't know uh, but i'm kind of called you know i'm attracted to get clarity here so that is like the the the, the state of of being in a really good inquiry because if you're in that kind of solution like mode problem solving mode uh let's get rid of this mode and that's not true inquiry because you don't you're not coming from a place of curiosity you're not coming from a place of wonderment um so i think all inquiries kind of imbue that embodied state yeah, just what that brings up for me is this memory of um, my counseling training. And there was, uh, inquiry was a big part of it. And I was doing an inquiry uh, with, with another uh, trainee. And we started doing, so the, the, uh, we were moved on to dialectic inquiry. So where we talk, we inquire into what's coming up in the space between us. And it was one of the, this one in particular was just one of the deepest human experiences I've ever had. It was sort of on par with a, with a psychedelic experience because it got deeper and deeper. So, you know, it began with, oh, I'm feeling a little bit nervous about doing this exercise and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm feeling like I need to perform for you in some way. And then he might say something like, yeah, you know, when you say that, I'm, I'm feeling myself relaxed in my body because I think I was feeling the same thing. And now I feel like we're dropped in a little bit. And then it went on like, you know, for 10, 20 minutes in, it just, gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And if you get into the right kind of flow, you start going somewhere, yeah, really new and unexpected. And what it makes me think about is how taboo it is in many social arenas in life to inquire too deeply in that way. Like if you're at a meeting at work and you're like, hey, I'm noticing that there's a there's a kind of strange tension with a with maybe a slightly erotic undertone going on in this meeting <laughs> what if anyone else is feeling that can you right and it would be like what the fuck is this person talking about but it would you know and so there's some sense where the social game the regular social game is only willing for a certain amount of inquiry and each culture is different like po polite politeness cultures like you know england and japan there's a lot going on under the surface, which is implicit and not spoken. And to speak it is incredibly rude, right? And so there's other cultures that are more direct, like, you know, Holland is, you know, they're very direct or Germany. But I just love that idea that uh, we could kind of, I don't know, pierce the veil in some way and go deeper than the social game by uh, applying some of these practices. And hearing you say that, it kind of reminds me how, like, far removed I am from all those spaces that don't honor inquiry. 
um it's like I, I know they're still out there but i forget sometimes because i don't i don't like you know i'm I, I'm out of the corporate ro- world for about uh five years now um i don't hang around with uh, uh people who are like my social circle just pretty much comprises of people like yourself right like kind of strange people who are at this kind of like this is uh this cutting edge of something um so actually like a lot of my criticisms go toward people who feel like they inquire too much or they navel gaze too much that's that's where kind of like my uh, focus is because i'm just surrounded by uh, um people who are inquiry junkies essentially but uh yeah just listen to you say that i realize how far i'm removed and that's like <clears throat> the default st- uh, state in, in, in most places yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a there's a there's a very strong element in these communities that we're part of of find the others. You know, I often hear that of um yeah, yeah, during Rebel Wisdom when we did our live events, that was a big theme. It's like people are like, Oh my god, I can't have these conversations with my friends or at work. That was uh, probably one of the main things people said. Just this morning I um I was uh, I'm doing this breathwork teacher training. Um and I was doing breathwork in my in this room I'm in right now, and I was doing some uh, I needed to scream basically, so I, I was doing some screaming and releasing. And then I, uh, afterwards, uh, in the 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 bit the WhatsApp group of the building that I'm in, this woman was like, "Oh, is every is everything okay down there?" I heard someone like sc- <laughs> screaming at the top of their lungs, and it was like and like a lot of banging. And I was like, because I was like doing uh, toning and banging, and I was like, "Oh fuck, how am I gonna?" Um, explain this <laughs> so I basically it was yeah it was sort of like running up against um yeah one of those reminders of like this is totally fucking normal to me to to you know have a have a good scream um but it's going to really be very confusing for someone else i just was like yeah i'm just doing breath work um but yeah that that is i think yeah there is something i think about these we space communities that looking at it from, yeah, let's say use the word cultural anthropologist or like a sociological perspective, they're fulfilling a need for, for many, right? Many of us who have a sense that the level of conversation and insight and openness and let's say, you know, access to wisdom in most social spaces is really lacking and, and could be uh, much better. So what I'm curious about it now is, is moving towards this idea of sort of creating culture, right? This is something you've talked about as well of like, how do we, you know, the way there are a lot of people who want to bring more of that into the wider culture, you know, m- myself included, I'm, I'm kind of dedicated to that. Like, how do we bring these things that seem totally fringe to many in the mainstream into the wider culture? So what, what's your, um, yeah, what are your kind of initial hit on that? Bringing the the we space uh, um, yeah to yeah exactly we space and and sort of associated um, let's say value around wisdom and deep knowing and um, sort of group you know group insight. Mm-hmm. My sense is um, like returning to that new artistic genre that will incorporate the arts like music festival dance uh with uh inquiry and we space type practices um and there's people out there doing it not that many but i think that's where the new culture will be um will be birthed essentially it's not going to be on our screens um in the spectacle uh it's not going to be in uh what i what i call sometimes terrible communities like kind of the these these more these spaces that's like thick with persona that we were just referring to um 
it's going to be in new spaces. And I think these new spaces not only have to be uh, physically created, but like emotional and spiritually created. Um, and through these, these kind of like artistic experiments, these communal artistic experiments. And so Burning Man, I guess, would be like, you know, um, the, the popular example um, of, of that. Uh, and I know there's a bunch of burns happening all over the world. But just um, how can we make those uh, attractive to uh, be in? Um, yeah, I think those, I think that's quite important. And it strikes me that, um, you know, postmodernism, which gets quite a bad rap among, you know, different tribes, but postmodernism was an art movement in many ways, you know, before it became sort of embedded uh, into universities and in, in, the, in the form of sort of post-structuralist thought, etc. And so I think something, um, it's a good reminder that a really powerful aesthetic approach to life can have massive cultural consequences down the line, you know, that starts out as a particular response to the times that people are living in. And then it can very quickly become fundamental to culture or fundamental to some branches of culture. So, I, you know, it just strikes me that it's, it's when people hear about, okay, you know, artistic movements, for example, they don't necessarily associate that with political or cultural change. But I think it absolutely, there is a very clear, I'm not going to say clear line, there's a squiggly line. There's a squiggly line between those two things, you know, cultural change and, and aesthetics. Yeah, totally. Um, I think if something is not beautiful, people are not going to be attracted by it in a very deep way. And there's this phrase that I came across recently is that um, consensus always beats truth, but beauty always beats consensus. Uh, and that just strikes me as true. <laughs> yeah, I really love that. You know, um, what was just popped into my head was I, I have a friend who's half Colombian and she used a word which escapes me right now, but she was talking about toy. We were talking about toys and she said, oh yeah, in, in Spanish, there's a word for toys, which is sort of like, it grabs you. It's like, I think it was grabbable. Like you see, like a toy is designed to be sort of like, Hey, grab me, you know? And as soon as she said it, I had a sense of the feel of that. I could feel, uh, I think I imagine like a rubber ducky. It's yellow. It's like quirky. It's like, oh, I want to kind of grab that, you know? And so I think that, I think the same is true. I think of any art and, and that's, that's maybe where you start to get between the, the line of pop art and the sort of popular culture and sort of high art, you know, which high art often deigns to be sort of inaccessible in some way, or it's only accessible if you have a lot of prior knowledge around that particular genre or whatever it might be. And there's some combination of, I, I really like something that really interests me is how do we, how to find that combination of high art, so to speak, and pop art that kind of combines together. Um, you're kind of working on something like this actually at the moment with, with your, with your coffee project, which might be a cool thing to, to talk about here. It just feels like it, it's a good fit. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm happy to uh, uh, plug it. Um, yeah. There's a quote that I want to share too by Byung-Chul Han. Um, see if I can find it. Yeah, here People it is. should check out for sure because he is an amazing thinker. Right? Yeah. yeah. So he kind of uh, had this interview in Art Review. I practice philosophy as art. That's the title of it. And um, he said, I would entrust art with the task of developing a new way of life. 
a new awareness, a new narrative against the prevailing doctrine. As such, uh, the savior is not philosophy, but art, or I practice philosophy as art. And I love that quote. Uh, and I, and I just, just resonates as true. And when I mentioned Pierre Hadot, he talks about like the philosophers, modern philosophers as artists of reason. And then the, the ancient philosophers were artists of life. And I do think the, the artists of life are going to be the ones that are going to bridge the, the high art and the pop art. Um, and it's going to create this new genre of like life art. Uh, and I, and I think there's like, there's no, um, there's going to be so much stumbling with this because there's no role models right now. We're really pioneers in all this. Uh, there's not this kind of role that like, I'm a painter, I'm this, you know, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. And then you have mentors there. It's just, people are going to be messing around and, and discovering something. And they're, they're going to be called by this, um, spirit that says do this thing this do this weird thing that doesn't have a name doesn't have a title doesn't have a genre uh, just trust yourself and create something with it and it's going to involve other bodies it's going to involve other souls it's going to involve uh, um, something that just can't be articulated in a, a so what do you do for a living question um, so that's my kind of a, a sense of uh, where the or how this new culture uh, will be made um and I, I'm happy to plug my my, my coffee bean right now. If uh, yeah, um, man, yeah, I think people would be would really keen. It's a very cool project. I think it's it's uh, it's very much deserves a plug. Cool. I, I wish I had a, a mock up of the actual bag, but it's going to be released in a couple of weeks. Uh, it's called the the Stoic Smile. Here's the logo, um, and it's an Ethiopian uh, Guatemala bean. Um, and the, the the first edition is just going to be the the bean, but in later editions uh, we're going to have um, a journaling ritual associated with it. That kind of uh, so it has like a zine that's connected with the the bean, uh, and then that gives you a ritual to how to um, ritualize uh, the coffee experience because it's a ritual that we all do, but it's, it's kind of like on autopilot or just you know just to keep you awake. Uh, and then Byung Chao Han, the, the philosopher I just uh, quoted, he has this beautiful book called The, the Disappearance of Ritual. Um, and I think we have to have to have a reappearance of ritual because ritual is a thing that kind of binds people together. Uh, and so I want to like fuse this coffee drinking ritual with journaling. Uh, and then the idea that this portals you to kind of the experiences of, uh, of like the stoa had to offer, such as collective journaling and maybe in-person experiences. So the idea is like a bean that has a zine that leads to a scene uh, and this, this notion of um, scene making. Um, so that's the kind of like the, the uh, trajectory of the thing, but it's uh, being released as a bean uh, that you can buy in a store website, a store near you. Amazing, man. I love it. I, I, yeah, I've, I've been actually quite looking forward to, to getting my uh, probably several bags because also my brother is a massive coffee drinker, as, as am I. Um, so, yeah. And what, you know, we, we've talked about it before. Um, one of the things I love about it is the, the fact that it combines two things. It, it's physical, right? And it's an embodied experience of actually drinking and, and enjoying the bean. Um, and then with the zine, obviously, it's, there's that art element, which is... Um, fungible in some way right I, this the zine is not online is I'm, I'm right in thinking that right it's a kind of printed yeah. only exactly yeah 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 which is amazing because that 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 i already there's already something that ritual like it's you know i wrote a, actually a piece um drawing on uh the disappearance of ritual that amazing book uh, a couple of i don't know a couple of months ago looking at the, the lack of ritual online and the kind of false rituals that we we uh, play online and, and part of that is because everything is permanent and and ritual, I think there's something to do with impermanence 
um, and locality, which is essential for ritual. And that's, yeah, it's one of the reasons I think this is such a cool project. Um, let's pause, pause there for a moment. Just, uh, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's, uh, uh, that's well said. Um, just, uh, there's a, let's see if I can pull this up in the psycho magic thing, which is sort of like a life art. Um, and one of the principles is that this could never happen twice. Repetition is the hallmark of disease. Uh, the less repeatable a psychomagical experience is, the more impact it's likely to have. Even if you're doing an experience with a format, try to design conditions that are unrepeatable, that can never happen again, even if you wanted them to. So there's something about these uh, sorts of rituals that are um, can't be scaled, uh, that the ones that have actual transformation and catharsis type effect. Yeah, that's really cool. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. That that um, makes me think about. I mean, festival culture, like you mentioned, like Burning Man, is full of these sort of moments of wonder that can't be repeated. Um, it's fascinating, you know. I've, I've um, there's a festival in the UK called Medicine Festival, um, and I've uh, been going since b- before it was a festival. They did like a proto festival um, where before COVID to to kind of do a workshop of fifty people to see like if we did a festival, what do you think we should include. And then I've been every year and I've had um, kind of a mixed relationship with it because as it evolved, you know, that was the vibe was not 100% my kind of vibe. But then this last year, I think they really nailed it. And one of the reasons was they had created these um, pockets. So basically they have these beautifully maintained fires all around the festival and they have a fire keeper with each one. And they are really, I mean, I was really impressed because they looked beautiful every single moment of the festival. But there was not a moment where the fire looked bad. It was always like really minimalist. There's like three logs burning perfectly like at all times, <laughs> stunning like sand sculpture kind of stuff around it. Um, and those fires were like at like three in the morning. That was kind of where things were going on. And it's not a big festival. It's, it's um, I think it was like eight, I, I probably get it wrong. Something like eight or 9,000, maybe it was 10,000 people. Um, and there were these moments, there was this one particular moment at that fire where, you know, the, these two incredible musicians, one playing a cello, one playing a violin, just played the most haunting, like, you know, like people were enraptured. I was just basically like, I think my mouth was probably hanging open. They were so good, right? It was just one of these amazing moments that was only spontaneous because they happened to be walking past with their instruments from being somewhere else. And it made me think like, it, it's a fascinating thing art form creating a festival in a way because you can't guarantee that's going to happen all you can do is create the conditions for that to happen and uh, and you know invite a certain amount of people and then you get lucky and so there there is something about that that magic um of that and i think there's something around intention is huge there because the intention around keeping those fires in a particular way ritualizing the fire experience i don't think it would happen without that without that and and there's nothing better in terms of impermanence than a fire right it's it's the sort of ultimate object of impermanence in some ways totally and it's like if you if you that scene that you just described if i watch that on a screen uh, someone recorded it or i'm just like watching a fire on my screen uh burn that's, that's a totally different thing um and so yeah i like this 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 that the magic of the festival and then life becoming more festival-like, um, like real life. Uh, and I think that's what's needed in order to uh, re-enchant the, the world. Yeah, I completely agree. And and this brings us nicely on to uh, new ways of knowing because, you know, one of the, the reasons I was really um, keen to get you involved um, and come in at the end of the, the process is that there, you know, I've spent years you know, researching sense making and trying my best to make sense in different ways and bringing these practices together. 
And like many people, I think I feel that diagnosing what's going on around us is very important, but it's very easy to get stuck in diagnosis. And then eventually we have to do something. We have to do something that is realistic within our sphere of agency, what we can actually do. But it feels to me that that, I mean, would, would you say that's the next stage in a process of sense making and, and figuring out what's going on? Do you, do you see it in that same way that then eventually it's like, let's build something, do something, create something, dance something, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and I had this piece uh, um, I wrote, uh, scene making greater than sense making. Um, and yeah, I think sense making is is good. Um, I think mainly it's good because you're sensing things now. You know, you're not just like like rationally thinking things and having theories. That's obviously a part of um, sense making, but it's done in a, a senseful way. And I, I love the um, Benito Roy's term, uh, sensefulness. And I do think a, a, a sensefulness movement is going to replace the mindfulness movement because um, it's like that's that's what you like really being in your body because when you're in your body like fully feeling all what's uh, aliveness that's happening here um that's when something just feels uh, transpersonal that's when it's something feels like it can channel through you uh and then you receive these divine downloads of like what to create and you don't know why uh, and there's like a wildness to it so <clears throat> i definitely think this the sensefulness is important in sense making rather than kind of like knowing the truth about the world so that's that's why i think it's like um the actual value of sense making is being sensible um but then when that's that's when you've got like a, a certain capacity there, then I think creating a scene, scene making, finding the others, uh, cohering with them, doing interesting experiments with them, having great trust. Because in order to have inquiry as the way we described it, it creates tremendous amount of intimacy. Because if you actually want to have a real conversation, uh, you have to talk about real things that are happening in your life, uh, stuff that's happening with your, your partner, um, you know, your, your deepest insecurities. Uh, your your tr troubles with finances. You have to get to like the the brass task of the situation, and you have to describe the details of it. If you just try to like you know talk in theory land, um, then you're not going to get there, and then true inquiry is not going to happen, and that aliveness is not going to emerge. So inquiry in that way requires tremendous intimacy, um, and then it's not something that I recommend everyone just run into, right? <laughs> like, because it's like then you're going to create this enmeshed shit show, um, but it is the direction. I think it is the right, correct uh, uh, navigational, you know, compass is to to move in that way. Yeah, I agree. And w one of the things I think is so promising about it as a um, approach is that making a scene. <laughs> I love that. Actually, just realized the double meaning of making a scene. At least in the UK, it's you know uh, causing a you know causing a social uh, ruckus basically. But let's say creating a scene is. Um, very doable within all of our spheres of agency. Like the, the idea of spheres of agency is something I've been um, working with a lot as I've been designing the course, but I think it's really important because, you know, you, we can look at geopolitics and be like, okay, make sense of it. It's like, ah, but is that way? Yes, I can try that. And it's important to have some sense of that, but it's way outside my sphere of agency and also a uh, sphere of expertise. So I then actually have to curate lots of different knowledge in order to, to get it. And that, that is an important process to a degree, but getting stuck there basically um, is, I think, not so useful. And this is something uh, Daniel Schmachterberger has talked about as well. It's like focusing in on where, where, is, where can I have an impact and where can I do something? Um, and I think that's usually greater than we think on the outset. And it's also um, 
it also basically creates these pockets of coherence within a complex swirling world. And, you know, that can be uh, in your neighborhood. It can be among your group of friends. It can be, you know, elsewhere. And then I think that these pockets can then connect and, and grow. You know, that's kind of a theory of change. You get these little pockets of coherence with different values. They find ways to coordinate. And then a more significant cultural social change can, can happen through that. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I'll just maybe um, see if that, that brought up anything. Yeah, no, I, um, I agree with what you what you shared. Um, and then the, yeah, the only thing that came up is this, like this intuition, this part of intuition, maybe like different ways of knowing. Um, Dave Snowden said something when he came to the STOA, he quoted the study. Uh, something like, he's, he's like, intuition is not good for like, you know, figuring out what is true or whatever, but it's really great to find out who you're going to get along with. Um, and uh and so it's like it's intuition is a great kind of social uh, way to, to relate with people and find out who who kind of like a, you'll relate well with. And I think when you kind of create out of a deep intuition, like you create artifacts, living experiences, life art, whatever, then it'll naturally attract people who um, are your people. And so there's just something about like creating art is not just like, oh, wow, it's a beautiful experience, but the beauty is finding the connections that are from the people who are drawn to your, your creation. Um, and so there's something about the role of intuition that came up for whatever reason, when you're talking, uh, how it's important in not only the, the art making, but the, the scene making as well. Yeah. I, that's an interesting thread to pull on, uh, because I know that John Verveke is going to be quite critical of intuition um, when he's delivering his session in the course, because, you know, if I ask him about that, or if someone asks him about that, um, and I think for good reason, because, um, you know, to your point about how do we become less foolish, um, blindly following our intuition is not uh, a great strategy. Um, actually, the, one of the really useful um, uh, descriptions of this I've heard is from Liv Burry. Uh, do you know Liv Burry? Have you come across her work? Yeah, she's for people who don't. She's a uh, she was a pro poker player um, and um, has a has quite a cool YouTube channel. And talks a lot about game theory. Um, but when we we did a conversation a, a couple of years ago, and she said this thing about intuition, which we were talking about in the, in the context of poker playing. You know, like you know, there's this there's this myth that poker playing is like these kind of guys and big big. Texas hats with a cigar and they're just they just know they're just intuitively doing it and she said like it's not actually the case and actually and now it's all statistic statisticians basically people who really know the math and about 10 percent of its intuition and her take on it was probably something that Snowden is maybe pointing to which is that intuition is really really good for something you've done lots of because you have this process what it's actually what a guy called William Duggan called strategic intuition where you are able to then just get an insight very quickly that just comes up and you're just like absolutely certain of it. It's like a fire. He uses the example of like a firefighter, a veteran firefighter going into a burning building and just gets this overwhelming sense. He's got to get all of his team out the building, right? There's no time to like, it's not rational. It's just like massive gut feeling. And it's like, okay, get everyone out. And then the whole building collapses. And in that case, it's like, he's seen thousands of fires and there's some slight variation in the air temperature, whatever it is that his unconscious mind is picking up on shooting into the conscious mind. And then it's like, boom, follow your intuition. But if it's your first day on the job in a nuclear power plant and you've never done it before, your intuition is crap. You have, it's like a terrible thing to follow. And I think the same is true very often of geopolitics what's going on in culture and a lot of more complex problems that we're facing. 
that our intuition is not very good for meeting those problems because we simply don't have enough of the the background to to understand the full complexity of it. Uh, but like you say, really, really effective for um, social dynamics and changing and building things in society because we are all pretty much experts at that because we're human beings and we're social animals. Yeah. And maybe this is something to inquire with John about during the course. Um, Cause I agree that uh, intuition in the way you described it and the way it's commonly known in the literature um, is not great for sense-making uh, in a lot of ways, because in the sense that you want to figure out what is actually true in the correspondence theory of truth. Um, but is it good for scene making? Is intuition like kind of the, the main thing? And, and not just intuition. Like when I use intuition, I sometimes use it interchangeably with this like deep intuition, which feels like like a proto-intuition or beyond intuition. It's kind of like what I refer to as like a daimon or the daimon, something just deeply kind of like points you in a direction that didn't feel like it got cultivated from lived experience my personal lived experience in this this in this realm um and i can't help but like get esoteric sounding when i talk about it uh but when i follow that sort of intuition that deep intuition um this this just feeling of creating art or just getting plugged into this art spirit emerges and usually when that happens some kind of experience or artifact comes from it that uh brings people together yeah i i for me, intuition, that that's a different type of, well, I, I call that destiny, actually. <laughs> it's sort of like some sense of des or like, um, and destiny is an interesting word because there's some sense of predestination or like this is a calling, like you, you used that language before. For me, that's my experience with that. And that feels very, yeah, to, 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 to stay, stay on the esoteric thread, that feels very much like it's something beyond the social game calling down through the social game that's how i experienced that i would also say though that scene building probably is a from the ingredient if, if livebury is correct in that assessment right then i would say scene building probably would still benefit from different types of intuition because each of us has been in loads of different friendship groups social groups scenes we've been in bowling clubs or like sports teams or like whatever like our partners work friend like there's so many different throughout your life scenes that you tap into and get the measure of and feel and get the vibe of so scene building is something that i would probably trust my intuition with um probably lead with my intuition in some ways, right? Because, because there's enough examples there of stuff that we've all done before that we can um, hopefully trust. And of course, we're going to get stuff wrong as well. Like you said before, I think that's important. There's going to be a, um, a lot of trial and error in, in a kind of scene building uh, process. Yeah, totally, totally. And um, this is uh, why I'm also cautious about... Uh, engaging in communal activities in such a way where I can't easily extract myself from at the end of my <laughs> life. Um, and why I, I also caution people from doing the same thing, like just jumping into some kind of uh, commune or intentional community. Uh, because if you go in with kind of, um, you go in naive and a lack of uh, what I like to call power literacy, like knowing like power dynamics and how people wield them. Uh, then really weird, uh, messy situations happen. Um, so yes, I do think it's the, the spiritual North Star, the scene making, this new art that kind of creates new ways that we can be together. But you can't 
you can do that in a bypassing way too. You can do we space bypassing. You can do like life art bypassing. Then uh, it gives you these heightened enchanted states. But then you find yourself with a group of people who are like, oh shit, I gotta like figure out how to like be with them. Even if you're not even like like reliant on their them, like just being with them emotionally is uh, uh, is a challenge. Yeah, totally. Um, totally agree with that. <laughs> Similar. I don't know if it's because I'm in my uh late 30s that i'm like that or if it's because of uh many many other reasons but no i totally agree with you in that yeah. we got our social bruises definitely from yeah, yeah that's exactly so so i thought um maybe the last thing i'd like to ask you is um about your where you're finding the most beauty right now um in life maybe that's somewhere in art maybe it's in ideas maybe it's somewhere in life but i've just uh thought that be, might be a nice place to uh to draw things to a close that's a good good question. Um, I don't know if I have a good answer. Uh, the thing that brings me most aliveness right now is writing, just getting uh, um, captured in this flow state, uh, and then like being surprised about what words emerge. I really enjoy that. Um, I'm getting back into reading really really deep, challenging books. Um, and I, re I read this one book. Uh, it was really like a weird book. I'll, I'll uh, um, I'll do a, a post on my Substack. Uh, it's called Big Mother, and um, I didn't know what the the heck the the author was was talking about uh, throughout. Like, like I knew the general <laughs> thesis, but I'm like, what's going on here? But just what got transmitted through his words, because I'm like, oh, this is whole this whole book was like almost like a performance art. It was like a Cohen in order to like transmit a certain state, and it actually like brought a calmness in my body, a stillness. Uh, despite how wacky and weird and strange uh, the book was and so i'm like yeah well like i like that bait and switch element of uh of uh cultural artifacts um and uh the other thing is uh my wife and i um got a movie account uh like kind of like the netflix for uh indie films foreign films and stuff like that uh, and try to watch more older movies foreign films, indie films, things that you're just not going to find in the movie movie theater or this algorithmically produced kind of like a cinema. Um, and it's like slower. It's more complex. It leaves you with an uneasy feeling in the body afterwards sometimes. It's like not like a clear, it's like almost like an unfinished quality often. Uh, it's not like a neat little bow of like, okay, the hero saves the day or they, they got together or some tragic thing. Um, and I like that kind of like that complexity in the body. And just staying there with it. Um, and I think that is basically maybe a definition of wisdom is how much complexity can you hold in your body? Uh, and a really good art um, encourages one to do that. That's beautiful. I, I, I really love that, that sense of, yeah, if art is there to help us embed ourselves deeper into reality, then art that gives us that sense of a lack of completion in some ways, or even a combination of completion and low completion, mm -hmm. is is attuning us to the world in a in a quite a fundamental way. And I think that's a that's yeah, I love that. That's a beautiful image. The unfinished. That's the, the unfinished. And then, ironically, your session on new ways of knowing is the very last session. But uh, maybe we can play with the unfinishing. <laughs> maybe I could call the session the unfinishing with Peter Lindbergh. So, yeah, Peter, man, thank you so much. It's uh, as always. I I finish our conversations feeling um, enriched. So, thank you.
Beautiful. Likewise, my friend. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to the course. Um, you got like an amazing uh, lineup. Uh, so the people who are lucky to attend are in for a treat. <laughs>